This podcast is offered by Hakkabai Zen Center on the web at hakkabai.org. Our programs are made possible by the generosity of people like you. So this is day three of our June session. In case you're, I'm going to try to talk louder. In case uh, you've lost track of where you are or when it is or who you are, which is probably a good sign. That can happen on Sashin. So I thought I would just ask at the beginning how everyone's doing. Uh, sometimes day three is a little bumpy. Uh, if your body's going to rebel, it's probably rebelling on day three. Mine started to rebel today. My knee decided to fight back. So any, any concerns, any issues? So, tonight we're going to keep going in the Fuken Zazengi. Um, and we're going to talk about mindfulness and no mindfulness. Um, and I thought, it, why don't we start uh, by just reading together <coughs> through where we got last night, the first four, or first three paragraphs. And then, uh, and then we'll stop there and I'll, we'll keep going. But just to remind where we started, let's just read together. The way is originally perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent on practice and realization? The true vehicle is self-sufficient. What need is there for our concentrated effort? Indeed, the whole body is free from dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from this very place. What use is there going off here and there to practice? And yet, if there is a hair's breadth deviation, it is like the gap between heaven and earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. Suppose you are confident in your understanding and rich in enlightenment, gaining the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the mind, arousing an aspiration to reach for the heavens. You are playing in the entranceway, but you are still short of the vital path of emancipation. Consider the Buddha, Although he was wise at birth, the influence of his six years of upright sitting is noticeable still. As for Bodhidharma, although he had received the mind seal, his nine years of facing a wall is celebrated to this day. If even the ancient sages were like this, how can we today dispense with wholehearted practice? Therefore, put aside the intellectual practice of investigating words and, catching, and chasing phrases and learn to take the backward step that turns the light and shines it inward. Body and mind of themselves will drop away and your original face will manifest. 
if you want to realize such, get to work on such right now. Or if you want to realize suchness, get to work on suchness right now. This fourth paragraph, or as it's written here, is the end of the beginning of the Fukan Zazengi. It's the end of this uh, urgent recommendation of what you're about, how to approach what you're about to be told how to do. Put aside the intellectual practice of investigating words and catching phrases, chasing phrases, and learn to take the backward step that turns the light and shines it inward. Body and mind of themselves will drop away and your original face will manifest. So when we start sitting in any tradition, mindfulness class at Google, wherever, um, often the very first thing that people have happened is they just suddenly notice how complex everything seems. Their mind that they'd always sort of taken for granted, I'm doing things, I'm thinking things, I'm in control here, suddenly seems very out of control. And it's a neat trick because all you have to do for most people to have that realization happen is ask someone to sit still and do nothing. And when we sit still and do nothing, for most people, the inside is just full of things going on. And I believe that's the, the, if that interests you, and it probably does or you wouldn't be here. If that interests you the first time it happens, then in my view, you're on the way. You are in the path. If it doesn't interest you, if you sit for the very first time and you watch your mind going all over the place, doing whatever it's doing, and it doesn't interest you, then it's probably not this lifetime. That's the beginning. And the next thing that often happens is you start to investigate, well, what is all that stuff going? What is this? What is this? What is it happening? And you immediately, most likely, many people notice that you are just unbelievably conditioned. Body, speech, and mind are all unbelievably conditioned. So I asked you last night to pay attention to when you had the urge to speak because so much of our speech is just conditioned speech. It's not intentional speech. It's not 
even thoughtful speech. Sometimes it's mean speech. It's conditional. It's conditioned. There's a stimulus. We see someone and we say something nice. We see someone and we say something harsh. We jump in to help. So much of our speech, if you really pause, was just an instant response to something. And when you slow down, like on Sashin, and you watch yourself, and you realize, I didn't need to say anything. It's okay as it is without me saying anything. The body-mind, the, 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 we think of body and mind, but there's body-mind. It's also so deeply conditioned. At a certain level, you start to see that right away because when you sit, almost always something will happen physically in your body. It'll hurt. You'll hiccup. Something will happen. And then your mind, something will happen. Some thought will happen. Instantly. And you can begin to investigate, well, now, wait a second. Because if you're sitting, that condition, that stimulus, whatever happened, a pain, an itch, an itch is a good one. My cheek itches. In normal day-to-day existence, you scratch, you, you itch your face before you even realize that you're experiencing the itch. But sitting... You can experience the itch and not have the conditioned response because you've been, you've given yourself something else, which is just sitting. So, and a huge amount of what we discover internally is just that. It's just conditioning. Uh, Partly that's because you're a physical human being. So you are designed to respond to bright things and quick movements. Uh, you might see a flower or a tree move outside the window and you, you notice it because you've been, you're designed for that. And that's a conditioned response. But there's billions of conditioned responses. You're conditioned to like symmetrical faces. Babies, as soon as they can see, will prefer symmetrical faces. Huh. Talk about like, don't like from last night. You're conditioned in, in just an infinite number of ways. And so one of the things that you immediately can start to explore is all of that conditioning. And what happens, what begins to happen, maybe happen instantly, but sometimes it takes a while, is a gap opens up between stimulus and response. A space. There's the movement, but no response. You just sit. There's a sound. The sound comes. The sound goes, and you choose to sit. You just sit. 
And that space is freedom. That space, that initial space between stimulus and response is choice, is freedom. A fly lands on your nose. Normally you would swat it before you even registered as a, it is a fly. But on Sashin, the fly lands on your nose, the fly crawls around, the fly crawls over here, the fly takes off. Wish it well, bye-bye fly, and away it goes. So that's one of the first things when we talk about mindfulness, and mindfulness has gotten very popular, but when we talk about awareness, well, my, when we talk about what happens with sitting, that's often the beginning. And the Buddha taught years and years and years and years and years and years and years of what to then do with that freedom. Because once you have that freedom to choose, you cannot just choose to not swat the fly. You can choose to not lie to someone. You can choose to not say the wrong thing, the mean thing to them. You can choose uh, to, be a, to be differently, to act differently. But you don't have that freedom. You don't have the ability if you don't have that gap between stimulus and response. Now, we've got to keep going. I want to, I'm not done yet with body-mind, but i got to get some more paragraphs in because we're getting to the bottom of the first page tonight. So uh, here we go. Let's all read it. Why not? So the next two paragraphs, really three paragraphs, are what you would normally start a meditation class with. If you go to the rec center and you take a mindfulness class or a meditation class, you'll start with these three paragraphs. And I think it's really, really important. What, why, do, why does Dogen not start here? Why doesn't he start with this next paragraph? The difference between Zen, the difference between learning sitting, learning all of this in this context of the Buddha's way is that you don't start with, here's how you do it. He has to clean up all the stuff we've been talking about first for the last two days. We'll come back to why, but... So let's read the next three paragraphs. Let's read them quick. For practicing Zen, a quiet room is suitable. Eat and drink moderately. Put aside all involvements and suspend all affairs. Do not think good or bad. Do not judge right or wrong. Give up the operations of mind, intellect, and consciousness. Stop measuring with thoughts, ideas, and views. Have no designs on becoming a Buddha. How could that be limited to sitting or lying down? At your sitting place, spread out a thick mat and put a cushion on it. Sit either in the full lotus or the half lotus position. In the full lotus position, first place your right foot on your left thigh, then your left foot on your right thigh. 
In the half lotus, simply place your left foot on your right thigh. Tie your robes loosely and arrange them neatly. Then place your right hand on your left leg and your left hand on your right palm, thumb tips lightly touching. Straighten your body and sit upright, leaning neither left nor right, neither forward nor backward. Align your ears with your shoulders and your nose with your navel. Rest the tip of your tongue against the front of the roof of your mouth with teeth together and lips shut. Always keep your eyes open and breathe softly through your nose. Once you have adjusted your posture, take a breath and exhale fully. Rock your body right and left and settle into steady and movable sitting. Think of not thinking. Not thinking? What kind of thinking is that? Non-thinking. That is the essential art of Zazen. Hmm. So, bless you. I don't think you have to sit in full lotus or half lotus. Let's be clear. In fact, I don't think you have to sit at all. The four noble postures, sitting, lying down, standing, walking, anything. So don't get hung up on that. So these are his instructions. This is everything you need to know, according to Dogen, about how to sit. Notice a bunch of things he doesn't do. He doesn't say, count to five, count your breath. Uh, he, he actually doesn't say almost anything about your breath at all, except breathe softly through your nose. And always keep your eyes open. That's a difference between Zen and certain other kinds of meditation. Other than that, he goes back to some things that may seem a little less concrete. Because he's trying to point. And he does it at the beginning of this section and he does it at the end. Body and mind of themselves will drop away. What is that? So this conditioning that we start to explore, somewhere in there, maybe immediately, maybe it takes a long time, no idea, that gap between stimulus and response explodes and you fall in. The phrase, body and mind of themselves will drop away, I don't know Japanese, but I was listening to a really wonderful lecture about this phrase. And in Japanese, it's shinjin datsuraku. Shinjin datsuraku. Shinjin is body mind, one word, body mind, shinjin. Body mind, so it's not your body and your mind, it's body mind. Body mind will drop away. Datsu and raku normally don't go together apparently in Japanese. Datsu means to cast off, to shed. It's like to do something. I'm, I'm dropping something. Raku is like leaves is falling, like leaves falling from a tree. You're not doing anything, something happens. 
So Dogen puts these two words together, Datsuraku, body mind, he puts four words together, body mind, Datsuraku, drop away, cast off and let fall. Cast off as if you are doing it and let fall as if it's just happening naturally. So, this is what some will call no mind, and I like to call no mindfulness instead of mindfulness. Because we're not actually trying to get more mindful exactly. More mindful is useful, and I encourage you to give yourself things to do while you're on sashin, like you know, can you step into the zendo each time with your left foot and step out with your right foot? Does it matter? No. But it's a useful thing to test. Every time you bow, can you have your hands perfectly aligned, perfectly pressed together as if, as Sensei said to me once, as if you're holding the whole universe between your two palms? And then bow. But then, actually, right then, body-mind may drop away. And I think in our cultures in the West, we don't have a great, we don't have great words for this. It's something that has happened to everyone. I'm convinced it's happened to everyone. No mind, body-mind dropping away has happened to everyone, but we don't recognize it as important we're not trained, we're not brought up to see it as something valuable. So whatever you're the best at, usually something physical, like skiing or playing violin or something. If you, if you remember the moments when you've been doing that thing and you're so, it's usually after you've done it a lot, and you're so engrossed, you're so captured, you're so just skiing that body-mind drops away. And all that happens in that moment is this experience that's, that you're not in, almost. Usually not a lot of thought, although sometimes so there's skiing you may be one to breathe, you know, there may be some rhythm or if you're playing music, there may be some rhythm that continues. But, but those moments, those moments are no mind. Those moments are non-thinking. And we've all had them. Sometimes they're really quick. And it's really useful to watch them to catch them. Now, of course, if you're watching them, then they go away. But start, right, notice them. I had a long falling away this afternoon with an ant on one of the pine trees. I'd been looking at the pond and I turned and walked over and looked at this pine tree with long pine needles and there was an ant crawling out the needle and back and down the needle and back. And then sometimes he'd jump over to another needle. 
it's important that in those moments, it's not that there are no thoughts. There were thoughts, aunt. At a, at a certain moment, I was concerned for the aunt, or there was concern. <laughs> there was a moment of recognizing that actually the ant's apparently random movement was, I think, because I was there. Great big shadow. <laughs> Poor ant. Ah. Bird! But those moments are very hard to talk about because they're not conceptual as much as simply an ex uh, a thing that happens. And then they end. Or let's say they end. And it's important not to grab onto them. Oh, I, I, I want the ant, come back. Um, sitting especially in Sashin, sitting as much as we're sitting. Those moments of no mind come and they go. This is thinking, not thinking, or non-thinking. Dogen references this non-thinking many, many times. And, and and the question in those moments is, or hmm, a question that, so let me back up. No mindfulness is accessing that more readily. <clears throat> And one question that can help with that is, can this just be enough? Can this just be enough? Just as it is. Questions about any of that from tonight? How do you know when speaking is needed and when it's not? Hmm. Good question. Speaking, you know, it's easy, I think, in Zen and in all meditative practices to start to think that words and speaking are the problem. And of course, speaking is our most powerful way to communicate. So it's, it's a wonderful thing and not a problem. I had one experience today where speaking was important to avert harm or to address potential harm. That seems like an obvious one. But I think the 
the question for me is, can I watch how much of my speech is really just babble, baba wawa, right? Just, and this is such a great opportunity for that. I don't know if I answered the question enough. This is a dumb question. I doubt it. I've just been wondering, why do those who follow Zen not sit in the lotus position? They sit with their legs back like that. Well, old people who follow Zen sit like that because our knees hurt and we can't get into lotus position. But Dogen says, sit in the lotus position and or the half lotus position. And if you can do it, I can't do it. I'm old and stiff and grumpy and I can't do it. But, but so you'll see a lot of us sitting with these benches because sitting on your knees, it, so for example, this is also a fairly stable position on your knees, like, like a lotus position. But for most Westerners, it's really hard to even do this for hours. So lotus and half lotus, I've never been able to do either of them. Some people in the room can't have, um, but are reported to be the most stable and perfect posture for sitting. I have to make do with an approximation. But it is important, I think, also to not fetishize lotus or half lotus or not fetishize anything. Um, because you can you can zazen lying down, you can zazen walking, you can zazen cleaning the dishes, you can zazen sitting, you can zazen standing, you can zazen in any way. So you can zazen on a plane. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> so I think it's important not to fetishize it. At the same time, you know, I've been learning a lot from watching Genshin because he's got very good posture and the more my posture, the more I work on my posture and improve my posture, things happen. It does matter. So on the one hand, you don't want to overdo it. On the other hand, you don't want to pretend it doesn't matter at all. Posture does matter a lot. And there's um, just something that comes up frequently, questions related to Jiho's questions. Um, like my uh, mother-in-law used to be of the nature of a bird that never stopped squawking and would chatter and chatter and chatter and her friends like to do the same thing and they get together and they chatter and they chatter and they chatter and uh, she hardly ever stopped talking and uh, she never listened to, to anything anybody said really she would just enjoy her talking so much, but it, 
and we have this prohibition against frivolous speech. And is that frivolous speech? Because it was her way of of, of contacting other people and, and mm. forming some kind of a bond with other people. It was certainly annoying if you're trying to uh, cook or do anything, read a book, or, you know, anything other than listen to her. It was very difficult, but hard to uh, know whether that, what do you think about that? Well, I think uh, <laughs> birds of a feather flock together, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think it's easy to be judgmental, particularly if you're a quiet type, which maybe Zen was a good fit for you anyway, because you're more quiet, or maybe you become more quiet the more you sit, it can suddenly become another one of these uh, traps of, well, why are these people so loud? And, so, and maybe they're just trying to touch each other. Maybe they're just trying to connect. Maybe they just need some human connectivity, and that's the way they do it. Uh, Is that when you should say not to? Not T-W-O. Not, not to. But that's me talking. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, the, if, if you begin to judge it, that's not going to go anywhere good. Uh, I have a daughter like that. My oldest daughter is like that. She talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. It's just her way. And... But sometimes uh, it's cultural. I remember you uh, once saying that I uh, visited home, I think, in Bhutan, and around a fire, and the whole family sat there, and nobody said anything the whole time. Yeah, and some that, of it's cultural. So since we're in the foundation of forming a culture, what kind of behavior are we encouraging, one that respect silence or one that respects a person's uh, right to be whoever they are and talk all the time? I think my answer, although uh, I've never, I don't know that I've ever answered one of your questions before. I would say an authentic culture. So if your speech is uh, authentic, Maybe for you that's only when necessary, very quiet, maybe, and not causing harm. That's a pretty big thing. And, and all I guess I would say for tonight is, I don't know about what, you, what happened for each of you today, but when you watch, so much of the urge to speak turns out not to be very authentic. Which is so strange. And we'll come tomorrow to then 
what is it that's speaking? How can that be? How can it be that so much of my, what I think of as my speech, my mind, my thoughts, turns out not to seem that way at all? Hmm. Okay, well, it's late. Thank you. Uh, We'll do uh, the same thing as last night, some chanting and prostrations before we stop. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Hakkabai Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Hakkabai and how to give, please visit us on the web at hakkabai.org.